Mediocre spirits demand of science a kind of certainty which it cannot give, a sort of religious satisfaction. Only the real, rare, true scientific minds can endure doubt, which is attached to all our knowledge. I always envy the physicists and mathematicians who can stand on firm ground. I hover, so to speak, in the air. Mental events seem to be immeasurable and probably always will be. There are a number of things in that quote. One, he sees himself as some kind of <laughs> levitating, hovering, rare, true scientific mind. He announces that he can endure doubt, as if to say, well, I can endure doubt, but you can't, you stupid idiot. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, this is a quote of Freud, and it's 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 towards the beginning of the graphic guide to psychoanalysis in which the whole idea of psychoanalysis is presented as an introduction. And I picked this up just a moment ago Mm -hmm. for a reason. But the main thing in the quote is mental events seem to be immeasurable and probably always will be. And more the, the, the idea of doubt, basically, the idea that everything we're talking about is a theory as opposed to an empirical science. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the Summer Special 2020. Yep, welcome to the Summer Special. The birds are singing, the sun is in the sky, there are balloons floating around because everyone's having summer parties and barbecues. I can smell ribs and burgers cooking on the barbecue now. Mmm, summer. At one point in... Oh, actually, no, I need to get something out. I knew there was something, and this is why I, I was totally reluctant to start talking about anything, because I knew that there was something that had to be good out of the way at the start. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Which is that we haven't done this in a long time, but once again, we find ourselves playing with time. So, as far as the listener is concerned, we have just come out of our four-part mini-series on the unconscious... And the listener has not yet heard, if they're listening in sequence, the episode that we know we've already recorded. Yes, okay, yes. About Carl Rogers. Oh, the secret Carl Rogers episode. So we mustn't mention the secret Carl Rogers episode, but we can we can mention Carl. Just cross it off my (laughs) list. Clicks pen. Crosses off. Don't worry, James. I won't mention it. (laughs) Right, okay, we can begin. (laughs) And what a way to begin this bumper summer episode with James pulling a quote out of the blue. It really doesn't, you know, necessarily fit in anywhere. But at the same time, what an interesting quote. Well, it does fit in because last year we had the bonfire of defunct beliefs. Yes, we did. Yes. And after I'd had my finding myself in France... Uh, transcendent experience Mm -hmm. uh, I decided to to rid myself of some core beliefs that I decided I had identified 
in mm-hmm. the south of France that I didn't need to carry around with me. Some baggage that I didn't need to constantly pay to check into the undercarriage, the gooch of any flight I might take. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> so, um, and so I thought we could have a look at core beliefs potentially on an annual basis because it's not like they go away. Well, it's, it's funny you should mention that because what I had prepared for today's episode is it's my top five questions for James about change. Well, I've got five things and this is in no way random. This is entirely... What's the word? There's an exact word. Contrived contrived this the the fact that you have five questions and i have five questions is entirely contrived so that we can have some nice cheesy game show music and make it a top 10 because i think at the start of this season we made a joke about sort of dan's top 10 tips fluffy tips yeah that was it at the start of the season we were talking about like the sort of like heavy subjects of self-development being impeded by totalitarian influence and the potential for AI to take away individual self-identity, which isn't inevitable. And and various other topics um, of the ideas of Carl Jung and so on that we jokingly said next week it'll be Dan's fluffy top 10 tips, sort of like quintessential self-help froth. Um, Top 10 tips for being the best you that you can be. Yeah, living your best life. Um, And we never did that. And I don't really necessarily plan to do it today. But by all means, shove in your top 10 tips if you have them wherever you like. I'm not going to stop you. But uh, basically, I've come to the conclusion... Oh, no, I haven't. That's a ridiculous way of saying this. Maybe this is a core belief. I consider most self-help to essentially be not worth the paper it's printed on. Do you? Why do you consider that? Well, we've talked about the cover of Flow, selling the ultimate guide to achieving happiness. We have. And I think most self-help tends to be a sort of simplified model of follow these simple tips and you'll be happy. Uh Uh-huh. I did actually, I was talking to someone yesterday and I brought up my disgust at the idea of happiness as a life goal and I am prepared to consider the extent to which that is just my disgust with the word happiness because what so what 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 if 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 someone says to you um if you say or if you ask someone how are you doing at the moment and they say yeah I'm really happy now I have had I've come out of 10 miserable years and I'm really happy. What do, you, do what, what do you what do you picture in your mind? Do you picture them screaming with laughter for, for twelve hours of the day? No. So okay. So what do you picture? Someone who is less unhappy than they are content. What do you mean? Well, if they've spent ten miserable years, you probably know about it if they're a good friend of yours, and you'll know why. You'll understand what some of the um, pitfalls of thinking they've fallen into and if they say yeah I'm happy now you'll understand that a lot of that might have gone away and that creates a much more pleasant mental landscape to be living in 
Okay, fine. So my immediate thought is that if they have gone through some kind of therapeutic process to get to that position, then fine. But if they have just got rid of an obstacle in their life, Mm -hmm. then also fine. But the next obstacle is just around the corner. Okay, but that's not what you were talking about. You were talking about having a disgust at the word, the idea of happiness, which... Yes. So... It would probably seem odd to most people, I think. <laughs> most people listening would think, okay. So, so the, the happiness is the emotion you feel when you've got rid of an obstacle. Potentially. Potentially, potentially snap. Yeah. Um, is that... Well, is when, that a relatively good definition of happiness? No, not really. Okay, what's, what's happiness? Happiness can be brought about from lots of different conditions. You know, it could be, you know, the absence of something or success in something, connecting with someone, appreciating, appreciating something. Um, so I always think of happiness as the emotion and therefore it lasts potentially something between half a second and half an hour, something like that. Why would you give it that time span? Because I am thinking of every time where I have considered my mood to be in an elevated state, as in noticeably abnormally positive feeling. Yeah, but that is not happiness, an abnormally positive feeling. I think a a normally positive feeling would be a good description of happiness. Well, so uh, this is all fine. This is just where I think... so. There, are, There's a whole list I could give. We could do a top 10 of reasons why happiness should not be your life goal. Number one, no one knows what happiness is. I certainly don't. Number two, if it is the emotion, then it's fleeting. Number three, if happiness represents overcoming an obstacle, then the next obstacle is coming at you and it's probably going to be bigger and coming at you faster than the previous one. There's three off the top of my head. But there are assumptions, you know. Uh, some people would work... Some people would very much understand what happiness is, as they would also understand what unhappiness was. You seem to have a very specific definition of it being this abnormally elevated mood, which other might, people might think of as hyperactivity or mania. I don't know. Like, Well, let's take half of those and create hypermania, because I would consider myself to have had over the past year, I, if, I, if I had to report feelings at the end of the day in, in a sort of cognitive behavioural therapy style of somewhere between... Well, actually, no, I, this is, no this, this, that, that, that's exactly what I'm saying. I wouldn't know which of the unhappy face, neutral face or happy face to report because what I'm saying, I think I've had the best conscious experience of life I have ever had over the past year or so yeah and in that time one thing that has remained a constant from my life before that is a fear of happiness and peak experience as I see it for fear that my natural high, my potential for peak experience without any artificial stimulation, any um, hallucinogenics or anything like that, creates the potential to come plummeting down to a low and therefore to create instability that's unmanageable. 
Whereas more manageable instability is not only necessary, but desirable because you don't want to just be so flat that you don't register on the consciousometer. <laughs> You're basically dead in that position. Uh, okay. Uh-huh. Or, or asleep or whatever. So you're saying you fear happiness because happiness to you is something that you lose. And if you lose happiness, life becomes what? It's, oh, well, okay, so I wouldn't... Maybe I'm, I'm maybe being a bit provocative to say I fear happiness. I do to some extent. I think it's true to say that I probably fear peak experience because I fear, for example taking magic mushrooms to have or, or psilocybin is it, is it psilocybin in the mushrooms or is that a separate yeah, yeah it's in the mushrooms yeah, okay. yeah. I, I fear any substance like that that might render me completely out of control having a peak experience that would then plummet me down into an uncontrollable low afterwards potentially so i think that is a fear that i have wouldn't you just return to where you were before, or...? I don't know. Ah. Okay. Interesting, interesting. So you sort of fear anything out of your ordinary? Yes, and if I think... Emotionally, back... like mood-wise. Yeah, over the past couple of weeks, though, there have been, been two occasions where I have felt more than two actually where I have felt quite a noticeable sudden elevated mood so like uh, just picture some kind of film cliche of everything's going right and I'm sort of like skipping over the bridge and there's what's what would be an upbeat soundtrack to that who would be singing uh, Walking be singing? on Sunshine by uh, Thingy and the KC Thingy Band yes aren't they called the Another, Sunshine Band that's um, <laughs> Katrina and the, Ra- the Waves oh that's one Katrina and the Waves yeah, yeah. Casey and the Sunshine Band had um, yes what did they have yeah, I can sing it in my head either of those songs either would of those. probably be perfectly acceptable for you to skip across the private practice bridge onto the private practice roof terrace yeah Mm-hmm. And what happened? I wasn't, so, well, I wasn't terrified. I wasn't thinking, oh my God, happiness is happening. <laughs> what do I do now? <laughs> do you want to tell us about one of those uh, happy events? Not that one. <laughs> <laughs> Was it meeting a new person? Is that one of the happy events that happened for you? Uh, well, that was one of the happy events, but the other one, I, I can't, I can't actually remember what happened. Now I can't, on the on the spot. Okay. One thing I can say is that it was unremarkable. An unremarkable happy event. Yeah, there was nothing like I had got a new job, I had fallen in love, I had. There's nothing. There's none. No, no major life event had happened. I hadn't had any luck, like winning the lottery or anything like that. It was. Uh, it could have been as simple as. In fact, it was. It could have been this actually. Uh, when I walk to the supermarket, I go along the side of a small river, and when the sun is shining, the sunlight comes dappling through the leaves, and it looks absolutely remarkable. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I now pay attention to that I would have completely ignored in the past. So that might be a moment of appreciation, like a moment of beauty, because to me it sounds like you've. But sometimes been it, happy for a long time. But it, sometimes it comes together. So like, I'm walking through the trees. I'm enjoying the movement after I've been sat working all day. I'm listening to something in my headphones. It could be music or it could be a podcast, but it, the, the music might have elevated my mood or the podcast 
might involve someone saying something that really does it for me. And so there's the, the swelling of my mood, the physical movement, and then suddenly I'm saturated with sense data from my, my eyes. And all together, that gives me a kind of rush where I feel like in the moment I'm aware of much more than I'm usually aware of in any given moment, even though that's not to say that I am suddenly inputting more sense data. It's that I'm just more aware of what's... I feel... I Enjoying sense, life. Yeah, that's the simple... But I feel like I am processing more sense data consciously than I normally would, I think is the more accurate way of describing that. And so... In that moment, I'm aware that it's fleeting. And then shortly after that, I can feel it just go, just disappears. And I suppose in that moment, I, I think, well, that, that just came and went. I didn't really choose it. I'm sort of like a puppet to that, to those strings being pulled. Mm -hmm. But you chose what you're listening to, you chose where you were walking, you chose to go for a walk, I, you chose to pay attention to the things that were around you. Yes, yeah, so I made, I present, I created the conditions whereby that was likely, but I couldn't recreate that right now with certainty. I couldn't find the same podcast or playlist, take the same walk, assuming the sun was shining uh -huh, uh -huh. in that moment. Um and know that I was going to feel that kind of... I, I, I wouldn't call this a peak experience because then you're diluting the definition of peak experience to include me walking to the supermarket with a psychedelic trip. Or a religious experience. Yeah, or something. Or falling in love. Yeah. Or succeeding at a goal that seems to give you an, an almost boundless amount of energy and enthusiasm for your next project. But it's no different to any other spectrum, like autism, for example. I, I would not put in my passport that I am autistic as I wouldn't have that officially. I mean, no, no one does. But I mean, like, you know, you're in your passport, you have your date of birth, your nationality. If, it were, if there were a box to say autistic or not autistic, I would put not autistic. But... I do consider myself to be somewhere between 40 and 60 percent. It depends what the scale is. Somewhere between zero and positive. Oh, no, everyone's between zero. What, what, so halfway between zero and extremely autistic. Half, so that's it. I, halfway between not at all character trait autistic and totally character trait autistic. I am somewhere in the middle. Um, my, I consider... Do, do, do you... I think that's okay it's kind of funny but yeah carry on if I, but but that doesn't but in order to class in order to say someone's autistic it would be ridiculous to say i am autistic because i can function in the world in ways that people who are severely autistic struggle i'm not sure why you've got onto this to be honest i'm still working out why you were talking about putting autism in a passport What's okay. that? <laughs> So, okay, so when I have the peak experience with the headphones and the movement and the sunlight coming through the trees and taking on all the sense data and I notice, I feel, I have a feeling, I feel it happening and then I notice it go away. All of this is registering with me. Yes. That, 
I'm saying that's not a, I'm not going to call that a peak experience in the same way that I'm not going to call myself autistic, but I do think that that's halfway to peak experience, just like I'm halfway to autistic. Okay. It's on the continuum of, of, um, deep and meaningful for want of a better phrase experience i think everything is on a continuum to something usually and i don't like labels because i think they're meaningless but i recognize that that labels exist i'm not going to suddenly make the world not have labels and that in a world where labels exist there is a reason why they exist it's not random and it's not like everyone else in the world dislikes them but tolerates them Mm mm-hmm so the label autistic exists so that people can know how to help someone who cannot function in the world. And for me to use up that resource might be considered ridiculous, even though I consider myself to be, to some extent, autistic. Yes, okay. And to call my walk to the supermarket a peak experience might be considered a bit ridiculous when you compare that with someone having a psychedelic trip? Potentially, but I don't think so. I, I think, you know, it is a, um, a relative experience. You know, there's relativity is at play here. Like if someone, I mean, for example, and I know this is a different, a different experience, someone who's been locked up or is in the house a lot or who has very, you know, has, has been very, cautious or anxious or nervous about getting out but then finds the confidence and the courage in themselves to go for that walk to the supermarket that could be a peak experience um so so for you you can't just say it's not a peak experience but also that that definition of a peak experience it's not do we know what it is james we don't know where the peak is and that was a perfect answer because most of the things we talk about in this podcast are concerned with an individual's state of consciousness. However, let me give you what I think is the overarching theme that we have come to and that I am presenting now so that you're not baffled by my autism passport stamp and all this stuff. Go ahead. Season four, we looked at ideas in psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. But we're, we've been looking at those ideas for how an individual considers their own state of consciousness. Flow is practical things you can do in your life to change your state of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Pull your socks up and flow, as we, mm-hmm. Con- mm-hmm. as we concluded every episode according to our disgruntled The Listener. Mm-hmm. And then in season six, within season six, we started to broaden that out to wider issues that don't just concern an individual so everything is about a person as an individual such as when we looked at um, Carl Jung's theory of self-development as a defense against mass mindedness and totalitarian control that is widening out the idea of why would you why would you introspect? Why would you develop yourself thinking about the outside world as opposed to just yourself and your mind? And then with Carl Rogers, don't worry, I'm not going to refer back to next week's episode that we've already recorded. Don't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
in his book on becoming a person Mm -hmm. great book you should read it he spends about maybe two-thirds of the book um explaining his theories of the conditions of therapy and then he broadens it out to well if this applies with one-to-one can it be broadened out to the wider world and that topic is on my mind at the moment and I started off being wide-eyed and excitable as if to as if duh obviously everything we talk about on this podcast can be widened out to the whole world and as soon as the whole world listens to this podcast they'll all be enlightened beings and when we started the unconscious series by saying that when I put on my most theatrical voice and said that it's been over a hundred years since Freud came up with theories of the unconscious so why are we not yet enlightened this podcast could enlighten the whole world because they all have access to it, it's free, and therefore that's the end of repression and defence mechanisms mm-hmm. and conflict and... And hopefully trauma. And yeah, all of it. I mean, we'll just get rid of trauma, it's, you know, just gone. Um, but there may be some barriers to that, and coming up... You think? In future episodes, we might be talking about some of those. Yeah, we've got some barriers to that, but you're right. Yeah, if everyone listened to the podcast, was able to understand it, was able to talk to other people in their circles about it and and have them think about change, then, yeah, you know, maybe things would begin to, like ripples in a pond. But I think two things of that, yes... With a wave of a magic wand, if the whole world listened to this podcast and the whole world was therefore conscious of the ideas and psychoanalysis, that would be quite a substantial leap towards fewer people living in... Probably, I would imagine, fewer people would live in a state of confusion whereby their core beliefs, their expectations of how their life should pan out don't match the world and that leads to overwhelming chaos that they can't manage and that that manifests in complexes and depression and defense and all that sort of stuff that could be eliminated because i and i could and the reason that i say that is not something that i've made up it is empirical within myself in the sense that i've never had formal therapy apart from six sessions of some kind of CBT um, psychotherapy hybrid, and she thought she'd fixed you, didn't she? Because, yeah, yeah. Um, I've never sort of, I've never had ten years of Jungian analysis, for example. Mm-hmm. Not More's yet. the pity. Yeah. Uh, no, <laughs> no one's had that um, privilege yet. Uh, or trauma. <laughs> <laughs> but I notice the difference in my life now compared with before we started this podcast and before I was exposed to all these ideas. So I believe that my state of consciousness is true for myself and therefore I can empirically state that my life has improved. No, 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 no. That is not empirical data. That is subjective experience. It, it It is not objective truth. No, no, I'm saying it's a well. I, I'm. Uh-uh. Can I say it's subjective truth for myself internally? Because there's no such no, thing no, as no, subjectivity no. or objectivity. There is only subjectivity no, inside no. my head. Untrue. 
untrue. Okay. Um, and I think that's the problem. Otherwise, uh, other, otherwise, why would anyone ever question? You know, I, I don't. I don't think we we do have that. It, it is nice to have a belief, but if you aren't able to also question that belief, if there isn't room for doubt, James, then something is wrong. Oh, okay. Which is where you started the podcast off with, but I do understand to your best, to your best um, thesis, internal thesis, your your internal narrative. You have the closest to truth about yourself and your experience than anyone has. Yes, it's the closest to that, but it is not a fact that you are a better, more enlightened, more worldly, wiser person from doing this podcast and reading what you've read. But I am exposed to you saying things like that so that I don't start to formulate those ideas as core beliefs. I know, madness, isn't it? It's great. But yeah, but, but it does make sense. I just wanted to be really clear. It's not empirical data. It is a, a narrative which holds very true and most people wouldn't disagree with. So Okay, because I, yeah. I don't really believe anything can be empirical because no one really understands consciousness. So how can anything be empirical? Yes, bitch. Um, and and I do want that to be a recurring theme on this podcast. But mm, mm. I but I was wondering well, if I could say that what yeah. I the only thing I know to be I don't true think is what's so. in my head. Uh, I mean, I'm sure some philosophers must say shit like that, and I think it's tosh. But uh, one of my favourite authors, who who may well be seen as very pop, you know, by some of our listener, um, <laughs> is a guy called Robert Anton Wilson, and he said this thing which would be in my top ten. Hey, remember this. And life will be better. Uh, don't believe the stuff that anyone else says 100%. Don't believe their bullshit. But also, don't believe your own bullshit 100%. And he just was like, don't think that what you think is truth just because it seems true. And don't think what someone else is saying is true just because they present it as truth. But I would also say the opposite. Don't think that nothing you think has any utility and that nothing no information anyone gives you is worth listening to yeah 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 but i don't think anyone can do that i I don't i really struggle Mm. to believe in the existence of nihilism i just don't see how anyone can do that unless they kill themselves well so therefore some people potentially reach as but i still think that's a transient state of nihilism that ends with their death and if they were physically restricted from killing themselves and they just had to carry on living their life constantly monitored so that they were yeah. almost it was impossible i don't uh, think they could be nihilistic for another 80 years I, if they I'm, were 20 sadly i have to disagree with you on that one as well um i've met people and worked with people who it, it, it the best minds that i have met in mental health aren't able to even come up with a a, a, a formulation or theory that call, that gives people with that internal death is the only option um, stance that give them any kind of comfort. I've worked with people who I'm unable to comfort, unable to bring something to their life that they can keep with them. That's not to say you can't distract someone or entertain someone who is nihilistic in their beliefs, because of course I can, but not able to change their fixed belief that the only way out is death what are you, what the fuck are you laughing at Sorry. this is the least this is like the least funny conversation i think we've ever had well, exactly i'm laughing because somehow i've managed to 
steer our bumper fun summer special into the most depressing hole. So indulge me with a few more words to get out of this hole and then we'll move on to our top 10 in the sack game and fun stuff. Yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah, I will. Yeah, but but I, th- I think this is a very relevant, you know, conversation. This, this, um, in our next episode, we'll probably have an argument at the beginning whereby I'm saying, let's just go with the flow, let's have a conversation. And this is what we've done today, James. You've gone with the flow. You've had a conversation, which again also leads me on to my top five questions for James Hall about James Hall, focusing okay. on James Hall. Okay, good. But yeah, you know what? Anything else on this though that you want to say before we go to well, the fun bit? Well, yes, and I am going to say it because that was that would have been a perfect transition into the fun bit, and you know I like to ruin that. I enjoy you ruining it as well. Yeah, yeah with more words. So here they are. <laughs> do you do you think that you know? You know, we were talking about what you can and can't know. Objective, tr- the objective truth of self, um, which I don't believe in. Just to clarify once more, do you think that that you know yourself? Oh, actually, is this one of my questions? No, no, it's not one of my questions. Do you think that you know yourself or are you open to the possibility that there is a lot about yourself? For example, how you sound when you laugh <laughs> that you just don't know, you know. I think the scope of what I don't know about myself, essentially that was the gist of why we made four episodes on the unconscious, is so vast and is not only so vast that I don't know myself, I would extend that to saying I don't think human beings can ever know all there is to know about themselves looking forwards millions of years potentially but I can also not claim that I know that to be true or likely yeah but no all I was going to say was that uh, therefore when we give advice I don't know I, I, I don't even I don't consider this podcast as giving advice anymore because and that's why I don't like most self-help because you can give advice and to random person p on the street it might be useful and change their life and random person s on the street it would not be useful or and random person t on the street it would be actively destructive um and so that's why I don't think self-help is particularly useful i'm sure you could say you could say that a large number out a large proportion of 100 people who read this self-help book reported it being useful in their life but why would they not report it being useful in their life they bought a self-help book wanting to self-help themselves and surprise surprise there they are self-help yeah yeah but um bibliotherapy as they call it in the trade um, has been proven to be incredibly useful. I mean, there's one set of guides, and I'm sure we've mentioned them at some point before, uh, the Overcoming series. So overcoming binge eating, overcoming alcohol misuse, overcoming uh, insomnia, overcoming depression, overcoming anxiety. You get the picture, right? Um, they're proven to be very, very useful. You know, they, they, they use them in therapy as an adjunct to the one-to-one therapy relationship or the group therapy relationship. But surely that's because that's for the same reason that I think this podcast is worthwhile because it's simply bringing the ideas of psychoanalysis into someone's consciousness, but it's then up to them to do their own self-development. Yeah, but I've forgotten what your phrase was, but you were saying that self-help books 
Aww. Well, I mean, to, the, I was saying that the, the promotion of happiness, like read this book and you'll be happy. I think that is a, a stupid aim. To but we also life. agree that advertisers, Satan's spawn, have somewhat taken over these things. You know, the uh, complete guide to find the, what was it? The, the, the classic guide to finding happiness. Or what was the other book? What was it on the front cover of that? Um, the hardwiring happiness. Oh, yeah. it, it's just you know, it's just you you you've got a you've got an obsession with the word happiness, and I think you, probably many people will think read the book, I will be happier, um, rather than read the book, do a lot of work that is suggested within the book, plus this, plus that, plus B C D E, and I might be able to have a more manageable relationship with my emotions. So. You're probably right, you know. It's a, it's a healthy cynicism towards self-help books. But at the same time, to say that they're not helpful is not helpful. Okay. It's just that everything is a doing word. It goes back to our doing episode of Flow, whereby I got out the guitar and pretended to play it. And just in case anyone thought that that was just mm. me showing off being obnoxious and being stupid for my own vanity, it was actually one of the most concise doctrines of what can be achieved with any form of sharing of knowledge of psychology and psychoanalysis, which is that there is nothing that is not a, a doing word, a process. So in other words, you cannot download self-help. You cannot download self-actualization. But one thing you can do is download peak experience with, for example, psilocybin, and that I think I still have a fear of. Excellent. I will then not feed you any psilocybin. But I, I, I wonder if... I, I, I wonder a lot about that. As in, if I were to work for a peak experience, I don't know if you can hmm. do that. Well, I suppose you can. Meditation theory, th theoretically, is a practice of mm. working towards a peak experience that is something that i don't fear because i feel like i've put in the work and now here is the peak experience but if i get a shortcut to it i feel like i could just be knocked off that perch and go plummeting into depression i don't think hitting reset at all i think plummeting into into depression well i'm sure that's happened to a lot of people who've taken mind-altering drugs with the we you know even with the kind of almost academic view of reaching a peak experience perhaps returning to the world as they had seen it before can be quite a blow oh, okay and i don't mean it the way that your face for a second seemed to indicate <laughs> maybe not anyway good point excellent work very proud of you you've done a really good job now let's talk about you Okay, the top 10 of whatever, it doesn't really matter as long as I can use some cheesy music. Absolutely. Anyway, so I've been thinking a lot about you perfect it shouldn't be any other way now james what i'd like before i give james hall the top five questions i currently have on my mind about james hall i'd like james hall to tell us all about this year for james hall 2020 where are we 
We're in the middle of 2020, and I know you could be listening to this in 2054, which could seem just like a history lesson, but what has the last six months been like for you? We kind of know what it was like when you were away on your travels. We kind of know what it was like in Montpellier. We kind of know that you have returned to this country, um, but what has the last six months been like for you? But we also kind of know, well, if if for for the listener who has listened from the start, the listener will also kind of know what it was like for me before that as well. Mm, mm. What has it been like since I came back? I feel like I should qualify that nothing is ever ideal when it is directly related to millions of cases of illness and death all around the world simultaneously. Yes, the COVID situation was not fun for a lot of people. But for me so far, it has been pretty good. As in, and I, I also think that for all the other people who have survived it, even even if I, even even if you okay i'm not going to try and step in the shoes of someone who's suffered domestic abuse or something throughout because they've been I, stuck I think in you should leave that to one side but i think one a, i think a person who has survived so far the epidemic will if nothing else have some data as to how what they used to accept as normal doesn't have to be that way, which is equivalent to going traveling or changing your habits in any way, which is always, I think, a good thing. I think total stasis of any kind of lifestyle is not good. I think too much chaos is intolerable for humans but total sort of like conservative keeping everything the same way stuck in the rut habits are not conducive to any form of satisfactory life and state of consciousness because well i don't i'm not going to say because because i, I use too many words i think you can just accept that <laughs> for many different reasons of course yeah and so for me not only have I had, well, I don't know, I, to some extent it hasn't all been that different to last year because I socially distanced myself last year. I put myself in totally new situations. I worked in a completely different arrangement to everything I'd known before, but given that I was suddenly teaching, standing in front of a class of children or visiting teenagers in their apartments as opposed to sitting in an office or standing behind a bar of a pub, which is all I'd known of work. So last year I did many of the things that I think are to be benefited from given a world that has changed due to the outbreak of the coronavirus in 2020. So that wasn't necessarily new to me, but I had, I had, I had in January I had returned to many things that were kind of... Familiar. Familiar, yeah. Um, and then that changed given that I don't know this is all boring I tell you what can you just 
prompt me with something you think I should talk about that's way more interesting than my office arrangements? Well, I think so far actually you've done a brilliant job in answering the question. So let's get down to the top five actual questions for James Hall, which might help you a little bit okay. with a little prompt. Good. In at number five. Well, hang on, can we do in at number one or ten? No, ten, because you've got five, I've got five, and I want to top ten. So we can't start with five unless I start. You do five, I do ten, you do four, I do nine. <laughs> so in at number ten. Yeah. Questions for James. In at number ten. What have you learnt about James Hall during this last six months in the UK? Hold on, I wasn't listening because questions for James in at number 10, five of them are questions for Dan, so questions in at number 10. Hang on one second. <laughs> Private Practice Podcast Top 10 Listener Questions in at number 10. The questions for the listener to listen to, but we're going to answer them. Exactly. Something like that. <laughs> Top 10 Listener questions in at number 10. This one's for you, James. Okay. What have you learned about you in the last six months? Okay, that's a good question. And I'm not going to answer any of these questions immediately if I don't have a good answer immediately and I can edit out pauses. No, that's not a problem. I don't know if there have been any dramatic revelations. I feel like I've been able to put into practice some of the things that did spontaneously pop into my awareness for the first time last year. Uh, so, for example, I've already talked about walking to the supermarket and having a semi-peak experience. <laughs> a semi-experience on the way to yeah, the supermarket. With sunlight dappling through the leaves. Beautiful. And obviously I'm aware that I can take that in and process it consciously as sense data in ways that I would never have done before because I don't have any memories of doing that very much. I, I do have some memories of that kind of thing, but not in, a, not in a sort of like walking back from the supermarket way. I think a lot of the time I can vaguely remember walking back from the supermarket when I lived in my flat before I went away to France and I was not just paying attention to the leaves or anything in fact to the extent that that I've been to places in London that with which areas with which I'm very familiar and in 2020 I've looked at them as if with new eyes and I have seen all that I must have not processed in previous times where I was there which suggests to me that there was what could be descriptively um, imagined as a cloud of chaos of other ideas that deny the sense data from being processed in the moment uh -huh. in the here and now so uh, but I, I was starting to be aware of that last year when I was taking walks in forests in Paris, for example, mm -hmm. and being aware of enjoying things in situations where previously I'd have thought, what's the point in this? Why am I just, where am I walking to? What, 
why am I doing this? Why should, why am I on my own walking with my thoughts? There are infinite other things I could be doing with my life. If I'd have thought about this sooner, I could be doing something now that's more valuable than this. And it's my fault for never sticking to anything. And now I've, now I'm here. I am thinking, what am I doing with my life? Because I never, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, instead of looking at the trees. Uh huh. Anything else that you've like recently discovered about yourself? Maybe more able to pay attention to emotions, and that probably comes. That probably is new for this year because I only started meditating in December. Yeah, so I'd never done that before. So any of the benefits of meditation will be, if we rule out benefits, immediate benefits in December. Any benefits of meditation are new for 2020 for James Hall. Uh huh. Okay. In at number nine, why does all of that matter? Because what matters is to have some kind, is uh, I would say a couple of things. Number one is to have a developed sense of self as a purposeful aim in life as opposed to being pulled by the strings of everything that is external. And the aim itself, the kind of purpose and meaning that we've talked about that is not given to you because it doesn't exist in the cosmos is necessary to not constantly stop at every decision at every waking moment and thinking well I don't know what to do so having some kind of aim and purpose in life just means that whenever you're presented with anything you think well this is what I'm going to do and okay Finally, we've got there. This, if, if you were, your, your face looked a bit glazed, but that has brought us to the main thing that I had noticed early on in this year that I'd completely forgotten, which is my ability to make decisions. So again, it goes back to that idea of a clouded consciousness, whereas before I really used to struggle with making decisions because I would think there are infinite things, there are infinite branches of this tree of life and I cannot really assign greater value to any one of them compared with all the rest, which leaves me in a state of total confusion. And therefore, I don't understand myself or the world or what to do about it. And now I've found a number of things this year where I've been presented with a choice and I've just made it like, duh. <laughs> well, obviously, because... I know myself a bit better. I know what I like and what I want. I know what kind of feelings I might have if I go left or right with this decision. I will do this. That's something I don't remember ever being particularly easy before in most situations. And there have been times in 2020 where I've been struck with the ease at which I've made a decision. So, in a number eight, what difference does knowing these things now make to you? I feel like I might have slightly answered that in the last question. So mm -hmm. let me see if I can... I'm sure I can bring up some new words. When I'm sure you can. You've never failed. <laughs> like, what difference does it make to you as a person, your character, your... I'm speaking for the listener question here itself, but what difference... What's different about you in that way? I can be more purposeful in the moment 
So right, let's let's be in the moment then. In the here and now, I just suddenly noticed I was clenching my sort of like central core sort of stomachy area. Mm-hmm. Um because I'm which I do when I get excitable and when I'm thinking so much that who knows. So you sort of hold yourself, you know, um physically tight and tense. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I just was aware of that in that moment. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a, that's a, that's actually a really useful one. I think so few people understand how they are holding themselves due to what's psychologically going on for them, rather than holding themselves for anything physical going on for them. And I think it's one of the huge benefits of different forms of exercise, you know. Um, but yeah, actually recognizing how your mental state and your your thinking will affect very, very rapidly the way that you hold yourself, the way that you breathe, the way that you tense muscles. That's a good one, James. That's a good answer. In at number seven? Yes. In at number seven. How do you feel as a person different this year? Emotionally, um, if you broadened it out away from these kind of knowledge things that you've been learning, these these character things, like how do you feel differently? I feel like I can have an emotion and slightly better know that I'm having an emotion and be able to identify which emotion I think it is. I certainly wasn't able to do that before. And that was, this is, this might, um, I was thinking this should form the basis of the sat game today because in a previous, uh, summer episode of the podcast, when we were recording in Normandy, I'm sure we had, a, a, a round of the sat game where I had to list emotions and I comically couldn't think of any or something like that. Yeah, I think you managed happiness, maybe sadness. I think perhaps you managed a couple, but not not too many. I thought maybe we could repeat that for the for the sat for the sat game today and see if I can think of more than two emotions. Okay. Uh, anything else you wanted to, to do? You wanted to give any examples of that? How you you know, felt differently this year? So, what was the question again? How do you feel within yourself? What emotions do you have that are different? Oh, I said, well, I, this year it's I, the twenty twenty. I don't know if I have emotions that are different, because if I was not aware of emotions I was having, how can I know if the emotions I have now are different or not? It's very good. Very good. Okay. So I think the difference is that I that to whatever extent I'm aware of emotions more and maybe this time next year I will have discovered that what I thought was quite a big difference was virtually nothing and next year I'll just be think of all the words that I could produce to describe my emotions next year can't wait (laughs) (laughs) okay and in at number six how are you going to behave differently towards others now knowing all these things that you've learned in 2020 so far i'm wondering how loaded these questions are and do i are you hoping that i have something to say about sharing a house with you or anything like interacting with your friends and family or anything like that i i you can answer the question however you want so what sorry again what was the question how do you think you're going to behave differently towards others knowing what you've learnt in 2020? Oh, well, I will 
forever be a different person having read On Becoming a Person by Carl Rogers. So that is a good example of where some knowledge can go on to allow someone to self-help themselves. And can you give an example of that at all? The conditions for self-development that he writes about and, 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 and calls unconditional positive regard, which we will be coming to in coming episodes. But the, the conditions for therapy, uh, wh whereas psychoanalysis, is, this, and this is why I gave that quote at the beginning, is not something I think that can be reduced to a formula, um, modelled and scaled very as I, I i i question if it can be at all and if it can be i would be confident in predicting the difficulties of that given the unknown of the unconscious mind and the sheer variables of genetic information social conditioning of, of childhood development all forces of the world mother nature and politics and relations with other people mm -hmm. and on top of that the mysteries of the unconscious and the potentially the, the potential for self-development and free will that comes from self-development with all of those variables how could you possibly model how could anyone how could even marvin from the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy I wonder if Marvin could process all of that data in order to somehow comprehend what was going on in a way that seemed like a model or a pattern that could be understood and explained. Outside of the therapy relationship. Yes, exactly. Well, it's interesting you say that because, and um, we've never really looked at this, but things like um, uh, therapeutic, um, therapeutic communities... Um, which would be very interesting to look at. There was an incredible hospital called the Henderson, which was closed down a few years ago due to funding, and that was in Sutton, um, a world leader in kind of psychodynamic thinking in a community. Um, but also there will be lots of other models, and also the uh, systemic therapy or family therapy would have that kind of model for thinking about how everyone's thinking and feeling, and perhaps not quite to the same extent as a... Um, Psycho, uh, uh, a psychodynamic one-to-one -one relationship might think about uh, intention and belief and unconscious but uh, there are models whereby communities have tried to do that with everyone having a at least um, some responsibility in understanding and questioning and challenging and processing all of those things but is that a model for the conditions in which a therapeutic transition can take place sorry so this is what i was saying about carl rogers you what was the question again <laughs> as in we're on what is it number six how will you behave differently towards others now knowing what you've learned in 2020 in 2019 i was not aware of the theory of unconditional positive regard that Carl Rogers writes about in his book On Becoming a Person. In 2020, I read the book and that has made me think differently about how I interact with other people. So that is what will be different mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because it is information that I didn't have last year. 
And so I've only recently read the book and like I've been trying to articulate in this episode, that doesn't mean that I've swallowed the knowledge and taken a hack, a shortcut to some kind of... um, Advanced interpersonal relationships. Yes, exactly. So there's lots of practice to come. And this is the big question that's, that's coming up on the podcast as well. To what extent can or should a person um, unconditionally, positively regard another? And what barriers might there be to that being successful? Uh-huh. But, but if I were to try and um, put into practice the theory... That mean that requires the practice. I'm not going to be the perfect unconditional positive regarder first time. Okay, okay, all right. Uh, that's that's the five listener questions I've got for you. Okay, well then, in at number five. Yeah. What does a psychoanalyst know? I think my questions are rather big, but then actually, to be honest, your questions were quite big. What does a psychoanalyst know? Yes. Because the unconscious is unknowable. It's not like you can know the theory of gravity and from then on just say it and everyone in the future knows it and therefore no one ever has a problem with gravity. All the, all, the whole idea of trauma, it's not like trauma has been explained and therefore no one in the future will have to worry about it in the same sense that no one will ever have to worry about why an apple falls from... Well, I mean, I don't agree with that. It only takes tomorrow for a scientist to say apples don't actually fall from trees. The spirits in the centre of the world mm-hmm. suck them into their quantum parallel universe or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, for now, gravity is more or less solved. Okay, so huge question there. It's an episode in itself, really, isn't it? What does a psychotherapist know? Yeah. Well, it depends on their training, of course, but a psychotherapist should know the basics of counselling, how you interact with someone, how you talk to someone, how you listen to someone, the basics and advanced techniques in communication, how to be present with someone, how to put their own thoughts and feelings um, to one side at the same time as recognise them. A psychotherapist will know potentially thousands of different theories about how someone behaves when they're under different emotional stresses and strains. They'll have different um, uh, training in various uh, ways of understanding the way someone describes their own history and their own life. They will have techniques for being able to um, encourage someone to um, speak their mind. They'll have different techniques and ideas about how to Um, help someone process strong, repressed or hidden or even present emotions. And and they're the kind of things they have. But keeping in mind a whole host of theories about how people uh, experience trauma, how people experience relationships, how people grow up and develop, what things stop them from changing and developing, what things stop them from being happy, what things... Well, hold on, hold on. What things stop people from changing and developing? Is that, is that 
are you saying that that is empirical facts that can be taught? You could write a list of things that stop people from changing, developing. Yeah, absolutely. We know that. Yeah, of course. So, such as what? Would be okay, so if you were in a relationship with your parents, and every time you say, "Mummy, I really wonder," she says, "Shut the fuck up, you little twat, James." You will learn at a certain point that asking questions is is not the done thing. Okay. That will stop you from developing an ability to ask questions. It might even give you a fear of asking questions. Um, if you are pampered beyond what is normal for a parent, every time anything sad or hurtful or awful or awkward happens, you might not be able, you might not learn, you might not develop to be able to process negative emotions. Um, if you are in a home where the parents themselves do not express express difficult emotions or positive emotions, you might learn never to feel those things, and that will stop you. But that doesn't mean that there isn't something going on underneath. So, for example, attachment theory is called attachment theory, not attachment fact or attachment knowledge. Mm-hmm. So is it? Yeah, but the theory of like relativity, the theory like gravity. Oh, they're all theories. Okay. So so we can we could potentially say that the theory of attachment and the theory of gravity <coughs> are attached in their equal gravity. Um it, it just depends. I mean I don't know why you 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 always do this you need these facts I understand that like again No I don't want to need facts and I am totally satisfied with the value of psychoanalysis given that it cannot be proven uh-huh. and that anyone can come along and say it's just a load of quacks making stuff up and they cannot justify themselves so i don't believe them fine anyone can say that and they wouldn't and i wouldn't tell them that they're wrong in scientific research you have to basically prove that you cannot disprove something that's the the way the research works you see you don't prove something as a fact you pretty much suggests strongly that it cannot be disproved. And that scientific method doesn't apply to psychoanalysis, um, I would suggest. Yeah, but, but the, the, yeah, it's, it's a, it's, in essence, it's a different kind of a research. But Well, hold on, can we draw categories that separate, for example, attachment theory, where, whereby you cannot know everything involved in attachment theory, but you can observe a, child, a child's behaviour scientifically because otherwise there would be no human sciences that could ever be considered worthy there would only be the science of physics and chemistry biology wouldn't exist yeah but you're getting into such a huge topic now if you want to break it down like that because the scientists who are interacting with atoms and molecules and chemicals and particles in essence there's no belief that the scientist being there affects the um the experiment but actually, the, the best scientists know that it does. And that's something that comes up in Carl Rogers' theory, that science is subjective. Yes, to a greater or lesser extent, depending on what you're doing, you know. Um, so, I, sorry, the question, what does a psychoanalyst know? I thought I gave a pretty good answer, to be I think did. There was a hefty chunk of you talking that I thought was excellent. Uh, can we say therefore I think I, I, what I want to do is try and summarise what I think he said and if you think this is what I think 
you I'm said, you. then we will have actually communicated as opposed to just talking at the microphone, leaving it to the listener to throw up in the air. Off you go. There are conditions of therapy that we can understand and conceptualise and therefore pass on as knowledge. And we can observe that they have a certain frequency of positive reported outcome from the person who's been through the process of therapy. They can say, my life is better now than it was before. And if we believe them, and they all correlate to the constraints of a process of therapy that has been replicated, then we can draw some data from that. But at the same time, the most experienced therapist psychoanalyst Mm -hmm. who knows as much as one would hope they know about all the theories from freud to the present day plus we would hope that they would have a vast extracurricular interest in philosophy and science and language and all the other and politics and all the other things that might contribute to a person's state of mind that person the archetypal perfect therapist can never go into a therapeutic relationship with another person with any sense of certainty about anything they're doing ever there is always a case of i have the theory i am as here and now sense receptive as i can be i I'm practicing to the best of my ability, unconditional positive regard with this person. But... You mean as to the outcome? They can never be 100% certain as to the outcome? They can never be 100% certain as to the outcome. And with every step they make, they can only feel that it is educated, informed and honest to here and now sense data. They cannot step with confidence into the unknown, knowing where they're going. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's, part, that's very much a part of it. And, okay. and if you go back to your initial quote, that's what Freud was talking about. Excellent. In at number four. Oh, I could actually have read these backwards and then because I've numbered them one to five, but number five was number one, so number four is number two. <laughs> And the listener is not surprised. Should people ever be defensive? <laughs> Should people ever be defensive? Um, well, it depends whose theory you believe. If you read The Art of War, attack is the best form of defense, if I remember right. I mean, I'm definitely paraphrasing and i'm probably getting it wrong but if you believe the you know a lot of the psychotherapeutic theories is getting in the way of you getting what you want or what you need from an interaction or relationship defense mechanisms are what is getting in the way of you getting what you want from an interaction or relationship yes okay 
Look, um, I'm getting good at repeating you, yeah. back what I think the person has said so that we can establish whether the communication is effective or whether you're just talking that way and I'm listening that way. I think that you did very well there, yeah. Um, but do I think, I mean, I shout at people sometimes. I get very frustrated with people. I, I don't think that they can be entirely avoided, but it's about catching yourself during the kind of precursor to a destructive defence. Um, um, because I'm sure... You know, uh, depending on who the recipient of the defensive response is, um, uh, lots of people are probably able to deal with it. And, you know, uh, give me give you an example. You are talking to your partner or your best friend and they're becoming defensive. You know, they're raising their voice. They're speaking a little bit faster. You can see that they're getting flustered. They are trying to explain to you that you don't know what you're talking about. If you keep pushing in a way, you know, to... to um, to disagree with them, to disagree with their defence, then neither of you are going to get anything out of that interaction very much. But if you know the person well enough to know that saying whatever it is, you know, distract the person, give them a couple of minutes, allow that like emotional thermometer to like drop down a few degrees and enable the person to talk about the thing that's bothering them. I mean, you gave me a perfect example of this a few weeks ago, having gone for a swim with a friend or whatever um and and you allow that person to reset often the defense it doesn't matter at all so you know that person was feeling an emotion they weren't very clear about what it was they were worried they were being judged something happened a defense happens so what was the wording of your question should people ever be defensive um you know i, I don't think it's generally necessary but um you know I think that's a pretty loaded question. Uh, well, it was a loaded question. It's kind of a teaser for when we talk about psychopaths. Love them. Coming up. Some of my favourite people on the planet. So, coming up, three more questions in the sack game. <laughs> <laughs> Summer special 2020! Yay! Bet you're glad you survived coronavirus for this. Well, I'm glad I survived coronavirus, yeah. In at number... Oh, number three is number three. Oh, on thank my list. goodness. In at number three, do you think in pictures, images, or both? What's the difference between a picture and an image? So, like, if I say to you an elephant having diarrhoea on top of a mouse, do you picture that or do you say in your head words... Well, you Gosh, said what a horrible thing to imagine. How you disgusting said, it would be for a mouse. Yeah, but you said pictures or images... They're the same thing. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yes, I do. <laughs> uh, yes, the question should have been, do you think in pictures, words or both? Uh, both. And I have sound as well. Wow. Go yeah. you. Yeah, go me. So, And it depends on my emotional temperature as to how intense all of that is. But also I have quite a... A cre like a not creative what's the word a uh i have yeah quite a creative imagination so i can actually close my eyes and enjoy that as well <laughs> like i have a rich fantasy world how about you i bet you do i th i think most of the time i think in words and i am more aware of that being the case for two reasons one because of my n new interest in philosophy but two because of the day last year when I noticed for the first time ever I was thinking in French 
I'm thinking, oh, <laughs> thinking, oh, well, this has never happened before. And, and suddenly it's different in my head because I'm using a different structure of what it is to experience consciousness. Mm. Because you, if you think in language, it's not your language that you've made up. It's something that you have swallowed into being. It's one of the deterministic, non-free willy things <laughs> about life. Mm -hmm. um, you inherit the language and then that dictates a, a large amount of your inner voice. But you don't inherit the images entirely. And if you look at, for example, impressionist painters they are not simply regurgitating the facts of structural violence onto a canvas as drones to the powerful forces that control them. Hmm. They, the whole essence of expressionist painting is here are, here is visual data that I have concocted myself. Okay. That's a little dig at the listener who might think that we are but drones having our strings pulled by the powerful oppressors and there is nothing else to our being. Okay. Yeah, so gutted. <laughs> You've been told. <laughs> In at number two, you go and look at some expressionist paintings and come back and explain who oppressed those. <laughs> Uh, in at number two, what collective core beliefs are new for summer 2020? Um, sorry, you answer it. I was just about to launch in and answer my own question there. Well, I, I, I'm getting the sense that there's a much, there's a much like uh, more accessible language for fear. Um, and I guess the core belief is that it is dangerous out there. Um, and... You know, I don't know that it is as dangerous for as many of us as, you know, we have been told uh, proportionately to the COVID crisis, you know, what we have to do to avoid all dying. Um, and I think there's a, a new core belief uh, of anxiety, like a core fear around interacting with others, um, which is very worrying. The interesting thing is that until you said the word covid or coronavirus um i assumed you were talking about black lives matter did in, you in the sense that there is a new language of articulating fear of how dangerous it is out there meaning something along the lines of for example if you're a black person the world is just full of murderous police and you have a target on your face and they are conspiring to slaughter you yeah okay um but then I, that's I, specific to black lives matter but it extends out to anyone who feels like they're like under threat the world is a dangerous place and every time they set foot outside their house they are exposed to yeah potential so, death so to me i don't know where the core belief is the right phrase i'd have to think much more about it to, to come but having suffered with fear of being outside for a long time of, of extreme anxiety about being 
um, not socialising, but being around people I don't know, and that's not socialising. It's supermarkets, buses, trains. Um, the the COVID thing, the fear of the invisible danger out there, that fits with my internal world anyway. Nothing has changed for me. I am out there going, well, it's just as dangerous, if not less dangerous now than it was, because everyone's being cautious. Apart from that fucking cyclist who rode into the side of my car last week. Um, But I think... The language, the, the the internal sort of, it might not be in English words, the, the emotional language, the emotional um, landscape, I know I keep using that, but of fear has become super real and it is shared. And if anything, I would say that the, you know, the uh, terrible George Floyd murder happening during the COVID crisis enabled fear to be expressed more than it would have done potentially if COVID had not been going on. And I've been asked this question by a friend of mine who's uh, a black journalist and he didn't understand or wanted to understand why are people now expressing their fear and their disgust and their um, uh, when perhaps it hasn't happened in the same way before. So I think that's changed psychologically as a shared something i'm not sure if it is core belief but it's like a core experience or a the collective unconscious yeah yeah we are we now know anxiety everyone who might not have recognized what the anxiety was before now knows fear and i because i i would agree with all of that i don't think that i don't think the police are all murderous assassins well we know they're not we know police (laughs) officers who are not murderous assassins who are good um uh, to to whatever extent a white person can be non-racist, um, considerate, caring, compassionate people who want to help. I also don't think that... Well, obviously, the, the statistically, there is a difference in likelihood of becoming ill with a disease, given that there is a, a pandemic. But I've always felt like, throughout the winter, I've always felt like every time I step outside my front door is potential to get flu or cold. And every like any time I... My mum always um, jokes about how the world is now behaving in ways that she always used to mock me for. And she frequently cites a time when we were in a hospital and I opened a door by kicking my leg up and sort of... It was sort of like one of those push bar, like an emergency exit doors. And I kicked my leg up and opened it with my foot. And at the time, she said, what on earth are you doing? And I said, well, we're in a hospital. People might have something contagious on their hands. I don't want to touch the thing that is a hand bar. So I put my foot on it to open the door and then held the door open with my elbow for the people to walk through it. So lucky for the people that went through after you who've got the bottom of your shitty shoe on their hand. Well, if they were stupid enough to use their hands, yes. They learnt a correct lesson from that day. Don't use your hands. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so, so, so in that sense... <laughs> Um, the the world has always been full of potential. Like you, you could die today. But that, but I always think if you if you are terrified of taking on the world, you just stay in bed. You're going to die because you have to 
get out of bed to eat and move and function. If you just stay in bed your whole life, you will just die. Uh-huh. So as soon as you go to the supermarket to get some food, you will cross a road. You will be in the world where where death is always likely. I mean, I don't. There's not. There's nothing. It's just certain 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 inputs have been tweaked they've been tweaked yeah yeah um uh, but, I, but i was when i said what collective core beliefs are new for summer 2020 i do think that everything you I, everything you said is what i was thinking and mm. we hadn't talked about this specifically no we haven't no. and i do think it fits in very well because you know i do like a good cia film or series and, and i watch this a lot and um i'm also very interested in um you know, propaganda, I guess, is the is the way way to to talk about it. Although I'm, I'm not au fait with the language, but uh, the way that during the uh, 80s and 90s, the Americans and probably the British and um, created this idea of the axis of evil. You know, that they created this um, almost polite uh, anti not polite. That's not the right word. Almost um, correct anti muslim anti other sort of feeling and fear attached to it you know that the muslims and uh, and their supporters are going to get us and that they created a culture of fear which i think may well have been a long precursor to this fear that we're now experiencing um as in slowly getting us ready to be petrified of fucking everything um, but I was already there, so way ahead of the curve. And I could, at this point, point the listener towards, if they're interested, uh, someone I really like called Coleman Hughes, who talks in way more detail about the death of George Floyd on his podcast, Conversations with Coleman. What an awesome name. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like a mustard. <laughs> in at number one. Whoa! Yes. Should you respect anyone's capacity for offence? No, I don't think so. No, um, I can understand. But when you say respect, clarify. Okay, so maybe maybe we can separate tactfully not being a provocateur when you know someone is in an emotional emotionally fragile state Uh maybe in that situation if you were to just willingly say what you believe will cause maximum offense to that person then you are a little shit yeah yeah but in general there's two there's two me's here there's the professional me who if someone is offended by something i'd want to unpack that a little and find out what the cause is, why it's so offensive, why that phrase or that that experience had, you know, offended them so much or hurt their feelings or... Um, and, and there'll be a lot behind it. You know, it's, it's generally, generally, in, in professional terms, it's not something that, um, that I would take lightly, someone being very upset by something even if they aren't the most fragile person in the world it's 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 had an impact on their mental health but you know with my friends and family and people i know and and people i'm meeting unless i see like you say unless i see someone's very distressed by something like clearly distressed which i'm guessing i'd recognize quite well um 
then challenging someone and trying and trying to help them find a better way of or a more positive for them way of dealing with a with with a feeling they get from something that someone else says a negative feeling yeah i mean you disgust or something yeah but like you know the anti-fragile idea that you've raised number of times it makes perfect sense if you're if i'm going to get offended you know if you're going to get offended every time i say you know you tall people are disgusting or um uh, queers are disgusting or you know well you're gonna you're, you're gonna be forever in a state of um offense no is that right yeah well no let's try and put this into better words the state of sorry i'm not yeah no it's fine it's fine all your words were excellent up until the last bit why would you say my words weren't good Um, you are living your life i think i would suggest that you are living your life constantly in a fragile state of vulnerability vulnerability yeah being being unable to tackle the inevitable obstacles in life in order to have a satisfactory path through your existence i do think that being offended is often a way of not actually having the capacity to tackle your disagreement with someone oh i disagree with you that all muslims are terrorists you know um and like so it's a taxi taxi drivers um often talk continuously when you're in a cab with them and the number of times I, i can't count how many times over the years I've sat in the back of the cab feeling uncomfortable but also feeling I need to say something about what they've said. Have you ever taken a taxi in Bulgaria though? No, I haven't taken a taxi in Bulgaria and I, know, I think I know the story that you're going to talk about um, if you did talk about it. Um, like a, the, the racist cab driver. Making uh, monkey noises at my friend Caroline who's black. Yeah, unbelievable. You know, it's absolutely fucking unbelievable. And But I would, even in that situation... I would suggest that Caroline is better off feeling confident. So, I mean, like the one thing that we have to rule out here is physical attack. So, like if he were to actually threaten her with physical violence, threaten her life, basically, then that's completely different. But if he's just going to drive her from A to B safely, then I think that she is better off rising above it is what you're saying rising above it however you would articulate that yeah yeah but i think for her to be offended um is perfectly fair she's not being a fragile snowflake as old pierce uh, whatever his name is would (laughs) but i think we should probably ask her in person because she wants to come on the podcast absolutely i'd be very interested very interested in that conversation rather than speaking for her Rather than being two white people speaking for a black person and saying how she should feel and what how she should live her life. I, I don't know that I was doing that, but okay. <laughs> Why don't we actually have her... Let's ask her. Yes, you've said enough. Okay, good. So, so that's the top 10 listener questions. So, yeah, the introduction took us to nihilism, despair and suicide. The top 10 questions have brought us to a taxi driver making monkey noises at a black person. Unbelievable. So let's see where the sack game will take us. Off you go. So I, th- well, I tell you what, um, I think, I'm going to put words in your mouth. I think, so your challenge to me should be, unless you choose not to accept it, uh-huh. to get me to see how many emotions I can list in one minute. Okay. And we can... Maybe compare no, that. No, 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 no. Better than that. Okay. How many emotions have you experienced this year? 
and I'll see if I can. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, minute. it's the same thing. You can just say you've experienced them, and we'll believe you, James. Okay. And go. Anger. Or. Frustration. Does lack of control, does that mean frustration? Are they the same thing? Lack of control, frustration? You might be frustrated at your lack of control. Yeah, frustration is an emotion, okay. Sort of like a willing kindness for someone else's well-being. And it was actually you. Hope? No, as in, I quietly, in my head, wished you well at some point. Or whatever that is, that one. That's a nice one. Um, what for? Experience four emotions. Come on, you can do it. Get five. Come on. Oh, James. But four is better than none. You did really well there, Button. Well done. Um, shall we do it where you just list emotions and see how many you can get in a minute to show me up? Oh my god, well what if I... Okay, what if you can only get three? Your time starts now. Okay, uh, fear, rage, anxiety, anger, sadness, happiness, hope, excitement, um, tiredness or exhaustion, um... Envy, jealousy, did I say rage already? I said rage. Disgust, confusion or conflict, something like that. Um, Heartbreak, love, intrigue, or no, that's that's not one. Uh, Not the thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Time's up. That's well. I mean, you got uh, fifteen, so you competitively won the sack game twenty twenty <laughs> until Christmas, anyway. Yeah, until Christmas. But um, disgust is an interesting one because it's an emotion that I've never really considered before, other than the obvious, like my disgust, taste, mouth, tongue, taste, disgust of tomatoes, for example. But but just disgust at another person, disgust at a situation, disgust at something someone does, an action or something like that. Um, I've never really considered that as a feeling I might be having in any given moment in the here and now and processing that I am currently disgusted with what's going on. What about with the hospital door? Aren't you disgusted at the hospital door that you have to push open with your foot? Possibly, but it's not a word I think I would have I suppose it could be fear, couldn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. In fact, I don't know if I am disgusted. I kind of accept the fact that there's just bacteria and stuff everywhere. It's more that I I fear, well, I suppose I fear premature, as I perceive it, death from infection of something I pick up on a door. I fear having to suffer unnecessarily whatever disease might befall me. Yeah. Oh, well, how do we turn that around for a... <laughs> For a positive end to this uh, 
this 2020 summer special of the Private Practice Podcast. Why don't we give a round of applause for non-murderous police? Yeah. Well done. While simultaneously acknowledging that everyone is flawed and every member of the police has a shadow and are capable of evil. Yeah, well done. That's the end of the clap then. <laughs> uh, so, well, that, what, what an episode. We have been all over the place. There have been ups and downs, highs and lows, lefts and rights, ins and outs. I, I have nothing else to say. Well, it's a goodbye from me, Daniel P. Brown, in the private practice. Oh, hang on. What about your news? Oh, okay, yes, news. The last news, thing we connect with news. News. Uh, the next, well, no, the next, sorry, the next episode of the private practice podcast will be in the past when we were sat here at this exact same table. But, uh, <laughs> and that will be kind of like potentially part one of two where we look at Carl Rogers and the theory of unconditional positive regard or we give an introduction to that and then we are going to then look at potential obstacles to that and in the specifically in the context of psychopathy or what constitutes a psychopath and what happens if you try and give unconditional positive regard to a psychopath. And why he ruined, why the psychopath ruined Carl Rogers. But that's not your news, James. But but we will be talking about psychopaths, yeah. not only here in the London private practice studio, uh-uh. but I will be talking about psychopaths in the all new private practice studio in Marseille in the south of France. Fantastic. I'm going to discover myself all over again. I'm going back to the place where I found myself the last time and I'm going to find more of myself and there'll just be more words. <laughs> and it's goodbye from me. <laughs> Preston, from the ordinary boys. <laughs>